Welcome back to the Simplifying Investing series, the podcast where we examine investing's biggest questions and break it all down into simple terms. I'm your host, Adam Masters. It's great to have you with us. Now, in this series, we've discussed some of the ways in which we can invest in ourselves and our future, but it's also important to remember that investing is so much more than just this. Every single day, businesses and governments around the world are grappling with the issue of climate change, and it's something that has been on just about everyone's lips in 2021. So how are we doing in terms of investing in our climate's future, and what impact will it have on our own financial fortunes? Earlier this year, we saw the release of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report. And if you've been keeping up with the news lately, you'll know that world leaders have been taking part in talks at COP26, the Conference of the Parties. That's the annual UN Climate Change Conference. The meeting, which is held in Glasgow, has amounted to some significant commitments from major nations, including the US and China. But I'd be really interested to know more about these pledges and what it means for our own investment choices. So joining me today is someone who is very passionate and knowledgeable about all things climate and ESG. He's making his return to the podcast, AMP's Head of Group Sustainability, Tom Trefry. Tom, great to have you here. Hey, Adam. Great to be back. Now, before we jump into things, here's a quick reminder. This podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is intended as a guide only. So Tom, as I've mentioned, important time for all of us to be discussing climate and its possible economic impacts. And it seems like 2021 has brought in a wave of regulatory change and There's been plenty of debate across the globe around the best means for tackling the climate concerns. Let's first touch on COP26. What were some of the big developments here and and why are they so important? Yeah, so COP is the UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties. And this year's session was really seen as crucial in in setting the next framework for renewed 2030 targets in line with the aspirations set out in the Paris Agreement, which was agreed back in 2015. Interestingly, after much speculation, Scott Morrison attended the conference with a recent net zero commitment um, to 2050, but no more additional ambitious 2030 emission reduction targets. Mm. Um, And the conference was actually also attended by um, our ex-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. So during the the two-week summit, we also saw a surprise announcement by the United States and China, the world's two largest emitters of carbon dioxide. Um, And this agreement was really to ramp up cooperation to tackle climate change. Now, this follows Biden announcing new 2030 targets for the US earlier this year and, of course, re-entering the Paris Agreement after President Trump pulled out of the agreement during his term. Mm. So so COP is a two-week conference, and by the end of the 12th of November, we had all countries sign up to what is now known as the Glasgow Climate Pact. Um, and there are several key elements to this. Uh, so the first one is the current that the current pledges um, that countries have committed to are not aligned to 1.5 degrees. In fact, we're actually on track for 2.4 degrees of warming by the middle of the century. Mm. Um, but countries have agreed to return next year at COP27 to try and keep the, the 1.5 target um, alive. And commentators are actually referring to this as keeping 1.5 alive. The the second thing to come out of the pact um, was that it was really the first global agreement to specifically reference fossil fuels, um, and countries have pledged to phase down 
coal subsidies. That's significant, isn't it? The phase down. Sorry to drop you, but phase down versus phase out. There was a bit of contention over the language there, wasn't there? Absolutely, yeah. And so these, I mean, these the COP is a negotiation, and like all negotiations, um, at the last minute there are parties that want to change language, and this was certainly the case for COP26 um, when uh, a late push by India and China changed the language from phase out to phase down. Mm. Now, the third the third thing to come out of the pact um, was a renewed emphasis on directing finance to developing nations. So previously, developed nations had committed um, $100 billion US dollars um, to developing nations by 2020, and that actually hadn't been met. So they were reconfirming that as part of um, the pact in Glasgow. And then finally, the pact also ha- really highlighted the importance of nature and ecosystems um, to the transition, with 124 countries agreeing to end deforestation by 2030. So what's interesting is that, you know, it didn't live up to all the expectations um, for many, particularly around the um, ambition of 2030 reduction targets. But there are some really promising signs, um, like the references to to phasing down coal subsidies. And Tom, I think you've captured the mood there really well because I, I was reading that um, the US climate envoy, John Kerry, he described the agreement as a good deal. But on the other side of things, you've got you know people like the famous climate, the young climate activist, Greta Thunberg, who made her feelings known. She's not quite as pleased with the final result. And as you say, you know, next year, COP27, I believe it's going to be in Egypt around the same time, mid-November. be really interesting to see where the world is uh, once we hit that part of 2022. Absolutely. Now, Tom, we mentioned in the introduction the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, and that was published earlier this year. Now, that addresses the most up-to-date physical understanding of the climate system and climate change. So for those of us who haven't read it, what are some of the key takeaways here? Yes, as you mentioned, and the IPCC report brings together the latest advances in climate science. It's important to understand the context that that report was actually the first of three in this latest sixth assessment report. So this first report covers the physical scientific basis of climate change. Then there'll be a second report to follow that will detail the vulnerability of socioeconomic and natural systems to climate change. Mm. And then a third report will come out assessing the options for mitigating climate change and reducing emissions globally. So this latest report is important for a couple of reasons. Um, And the first is really that it is just the latest and most emphatic collection of climate science data on the physical warming of our planet and that it is happening. Um, The second um, is that it, also highlights that we're on track to reach 1.5 degrees of warming by the 2030s. Um, and so, as I mentioned previously, the um, the target set out by the Paris Agreement back in 2015 was to limit warming to well below 2 degrees by 2050 and ideally 1.5, but we're not on track, which is what um, was such an um, important point in COP26 with a lot of countries being encouraged to um, increase the ambition on their 2030 targets. Now, if, if we've been following along the climate debate for any amount of time, really, there's a good chance that our listeners would have heard the expressions net zero, carbon neutral, etc. I know they've certainly come up in Australia's political discourse, and increasingly they're a part of the conversation around investment choices, which is something I also want to discuss today. Before we get into all of that, Tom, can you just spell out what these terms mean exactly, the net zero and carbon neutral? 
Sure, because yeah, they are similar concepts, but they do have slightly different different meanings. So I'll start with carbon neutral. So carbon neutral is the process of offsetting an individual or organization's carbon footprint at a point in time. But generally this involves measuring, reducing and offsetting scope one, two, and three emissions through purchasing carbon offsets or credits. So these companies or individuals are still using energy and emitting carbon into the atmosphere, but they're being offset through the purchase of offsets and credits. Um, net zero carbon refers to reducing emissions globally with the goal of balancing carbon emitted and carbon absorbed into the atmosphere. It's really a, a global sort of planetary concept, um, but it is increasingly being applied to countries states and organizations and even down to things like buildings Mm -hmm. so as reduction as these reduction targets are are reached offsets are used to neutralize unavoidable emissions in the tail end and then what's interesting is that um listeners may have heard um beyond net zero there is a concept of being carbon negative where we actually absorb more emissions um, than we emit after we've hit net zero Um, the concept here being that we need to offset um, the historical emissions that we've also emitted in, into the atmosphere in order to keep um, uh, the warming trajectory to one limited to 1.5 degrees. Good to have that spelled out because I'm pretty sure that I've used some of those terms interchangeably and definitely not in the correct context. So good to have that explained for us. Um, I just want to wind back a little bit there, Tom, because you did mention scope one, two, and three. Can, can you just explain that? What is that exactly? Sure. So, so the, each of the scopes refer to um the emission sources so if we consider scope one emissions these are the direct emissions um from fuels consumed on site so for example if you use natural gas to heat or cook at home Mm. you're combusting fuel at home um the emissions associated with that use are considered scope one emissions okay um scope two emissions are indirect emissions and they're specifically for electricity consumption so when you use electricity at your home or if a company uses electricity to power their office, um, the energy associated with that use um, and the carbon that's emitted are known as scope two emissions. And then finally, scope three is a much broader term that encompasses, um, can encompass really the whole value chain. So it can be anything from air travel, purchasing food, embodied emissions from the construction of something like your car, can even be things like investments like your superannuation savings or scope three emissions and what's really interesting is that scope one and two emissions are relatively easy to measure but scope three is a lot harder because it depends on where you draw the boundary and there are also all forms of double counting issues because your scope three emissions could be someone else's scope one or scope two emissions yeah sounds like there's a bit of work in defining that glad it's not me um hey tom curious to know how australia stacks up then compared to say the rest of the world or at least other developed nations in in meeting these climate targets and i guess tackling the issue of climate change yeah so it's fair to say australia is behind um most of the world in its ambitions for targets particularly on the 2030 targets so we currently have a 26 to 28 percent reduction target um, and there were calls to increase the ambition of this target ahead of Glasgow, but that didn't um, come to fruition. Um, but I do, um, it is worth noting that many Australian businesses, communities, states, and even cities are already setting quite ambitious plans and roadmaps um, to 2030 and 2050, um, and really seeing that there's an advantage um, 
in investing in the opportunities that the um, transition can bring about um, for society and community. All right. And that's actually a really good transition for my next question, because I think we have a pretty good grasp of the the impact that climate uh, climate change can have on, on the world, on our environment. But I suppose there is also other implications for our own uh, personal investment, our own personal wealth. And so thinking a little bit more in terms of that for a moment, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more on what impact climate action or inaction actually has on the financial market. Yeah, it's a good question, Adam, because I think climate change has long been recognised as a systemic risk that has real economic and financial impacts on global and regional economies and on the companies, businesses and individuals which operate within those economies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the sort of the most informative frameworks I think came out of um, the Financial Stability Board um, a few years ago now called the TCFD or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And it really outlined um, two key buckets of the types of climate risks and the way they have financial impacts um, to companies and to the economy. So the first type of risk that they describe are physical risks, um, and these are can include chronic and acute risks. So an example of, an, of a chronic climate change risk could be sea level rise mm. um, or increase, increasing temperatures leading to heat stress in um, cities and having health impacts to communities, whereas acute physical risks um, reflect more severe um, extreme weather events, um, be it storm surges, flooding, um, or bushfires that cause damage. So they kind of identify those physical risks. And then on the transition side is a much broader um, uh, articulation of the types of risks that climate change might have on, on the economy. And they can come in the way of um, changing market preferences, changes in liquidity, changing consumer preferences. Um, So, for example, if we take the recent pledge um, from Glasgow, we see that there's a a phase down in coal subsidies. This could change the economic equation for investors when it comes to um, investing in coal, um, which may lead to a devaluation of companies who um, rely on coal um, as part of their operations. So they're sort of the two big buckets, but what's also really interesting about TCFD is that it also provides a framework for us to think about um, the range of opportunities that actually exist as well. So yes, while there are risks um, associated with climate change um, and in a world of increased um, extreme weather events, for example, there are also a number of investment opportunities that we can really take advantage of in financial markets, be it renewable energy, innovations like green hydrogen or alternative alternative meats and foods. I'm curious to know how investment managers then address and manage the risks and the opportunities that are associated with this. Yeah, so as we touched on back in an earlier episode of the podcast series, episode 14, I believe, there were, we talked about a range of strategies um, across the responsible inve- investment spectrum that managers adopt. Um, and using those similar strategies, we can consider um, climate risk, and that's how investment managers often think about the impact of climate change. So on one end, you've got um, strategies like ESG integration, which use ESG factors like climate change alongside traditional financial factors. Um, so, for example, is a company's operations or supply chains overly vulnerable to extreme weather, which could lead to disruptions and impact 
um, company performance. Mm. Other strategies include uh, negative screening. So this might mean applying certain revenue thresholds on things like thermal coal producers, for example. Another strategy that's widely used is engagement. Um, so it's about voting and engaging with underlying companies and assets to develop their own emission reduction plans um, and ensure that they're operating within the net zero aspirations set out by the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. And then finally, strategies like positive screening or investing in specific themes um, like renewable energy is also another way that investment managers seek to address and embrace the opportunities that exist in the transition to, to net zero. Because in practice, many managers use a combination of all of these strategies. Is there any particular strategy that might be more effective than others or is there no one size fits all scenario here? Yeah, it's a good question I mean, because it depends what you're after, um, whether you're wanting to reduce your own risk or looking to have a real world impact or may maybe you're after a bit of both because mm. there is something of a divestment versus engagement debate about the most effective way to allocate capital for greatest impact in this space. So if we take divestment, um, in the first instance, divestment is about shifting capital away entirely from specific companies or assets. Now, some argue that may encourage these companies to change their behaviour. Another view is that divestment just transfers the risk to someone else who is willing to take on that risk, maybe for a short-term gain and not the, and not the long-term aspiration. And that may lead to companies conti continuing to pursue sort of business as usual. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, you have engagement. Uh, where you actually use your equity and shareholdings to vote or to engage um, companies to change their actions. Now, provided these companies or assets have changed their approach, you can demonstrate a real-world impact as companies within a portfolio sort of change their practices. The caveat here, of course, is that you need to be able to prove or demonstrate that there is a change in impact resulting from your engagement opportunities. But there's sort of different strategies have different impacts um, and effects on the behaviours of underlying companies and assets. So that's why often a combination of strategies are used. Okay. Now I've saved uh, probably one of the most important questions for last. So let's go out on a high here, Tom. Um, if our listeners are perhaps listening along and thinking about their own investment portfolio and say they want to access more climate-friendly investments, what's your advice for them? How should they go about it? Sure. So I think first up, speak to your advisor or super fund and see what they offer. I think you'll find that most ESG or sustainable funds or investment options explicitly consider climate change. Some of the other things you'd like might you'd like to consider, or you might ask yourself, uh, what are your values? Um, so do you want your money invested in things like thermal coal? Um, you can also ask, what are the engagement activities of your fund, and are they having an impact? Um, you can also look at um, things like if your fund discloses the carbon intensity of its investments and uses that to inform its investment philosophy and even does the fund um, or company that you're investing in walk the talk and actually um, seek to reduce and offset its own footprint across its own operations. Mm. The other, the other thing to really consider is um, and to look out for are sort of sweeping generalisations. Um, and I think there's some good examples here when we talk about um, debates around coal and mining, because I think a lot of these details sometimes get a bit lost um, in the debates. 
Um, so if we start with coal, for example, we often don't distinguish enough between thermal coal. So thermal coal is for heating and generating electricity versus metallurgical coal, which is used for steel making. And a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know the difference, would they, just on face value? No, exactly. And what's really interesting is that steel has a really big role to play in manufacturing for the transition to net zero. And it's not, and the metallurgical coal isn't easily replaceable. But this is why technologies like hydrogen are getting a lot of attention recently. And we saw this, we've seen this with Tui Forest because it sets new pathways on, on possibilities for green steel. Okay. Um, and the same goes for mining. So not, not all mining is categorically bad. So putting aside the direct land and social impacts of mining, you know, lithium mining is critical for battery technology, which is going to play a key role in the transition. And there are a range of other technologies like solar panels that rely on minerals and mining for production. Mm. And of course, these come with their own resource use and life cycle challenges. So these are just some of the complexities that we really need to embrace as we transition to a low carbon future, because there isn't a single solution to any of these problems. And sometimes a solution for one issue can cause um, problems elsewhere. Um, but that's why it's really important that we consider the whole system and particularly when we're considering climate friendly investments and that you align um, climate related risks and opportunities to other um, factors in your in your investment profiles be it risk uh, time frames you name it so it's best to get um, seek out expert advice good reminder there that there are options for anyone who's looking to take a closer look at their own investments so Tom, look, thanks again for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us here on the podcast once again, I should say. Um, Listeners, that's all we have time for. But a reminder before we go, as ever, it's always important to consider seeking out expert tailored advice that's relevant to your own financial circumstances before you make any important financial decisions.